Welcome to the Picture Books to Gang podcast. I'm Allie. I'm Corey. I'm Kelly, and we are the Picture Books to Gang. We invite you to join us here every other week while we discuss amazing books and issues in children's literature, as well as early literacy, education, and parenting as it relates to reading. We can't wait to dig in deep and get nerdy about picture books with you. Hello, and welcome back to the Picture Books to Gang podcast. I'm Corey, and I am joined by my stunningly gorgeous and super amazing co-hosts, Kelly and Ale. Hello, good to be back. Hi, I'm Allie, and I am super stunningly gorgeous. That is true. It's true. <laughs> it's true. We are. Yeah. All yeah. of us. All of us. <laughs> so this week we are tackling a massive topic yet again, uh, something I think we are going to keep returning to again and again. Why are there so many anthropomorphic animal characters tackling big issues in children's literature? So when we were first talking about this uh, topic as the podcast um, idea, I, it was because I quite literally asked the question of why are there so many queer guinea pigs in Kidlet? And this happened right after I reviewed uh, Jonathan Van Ness's new book, Peanut Goes to the Gold, which is about a non-binary guinea pig. And then finding out that the uh, original version of the newly re-released in 2020 book, Uncle Bobby's Wedding, originally featured a family of guinea pigs as the protagonist. Yeah, um, Uncle Bobby's Wedding is notable because it was one of the first mainstream children's books about gay marriage, uh, but it was with guinea pigs originally. The, the new release has human people getting married and yeah. peanut goes for the gold is also notable because it's one of the only um, own voices non-binary protagonist children's books that is out there right now exactly so while we were having a bit of a laugh about the prevalence of queer guinea pigs this is actually a really major topic to dig into why are we passing off these important discussions about human beings and softening them by using anthropomorphized animals in the discussion? There are actually so many books, notably a huge percentage of LGBTQ representations in children's lit that do this. Marlon Bundo, Worm Loves Worm, Red, um, A Crayon Story, and Tango Makes Three, even though that is about an actual true story. Um, and not quite narwhal, which is its whole other discussion that we're going to get into. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this is extremely prevalent through many big topics. And I often, you know, personally view it as a softening for the adults reading the stories more so than it is for kids. Kids are incredibly smart and usually trust that what their parents or teachers tell, are telling them is something that's okay. They can handle two humans of the same gender or sex getting married or learning about pronouns with actual people. And they can relate to it so much better. Right. We really don't need the divider to keep it separate from what is what people are doing. We don't we don't need to have them as rabbits. We can children can handle them as humans. And really, so can we. Can't we handle that? Mm -hmm. And we're not saying that all books that have animals in them are not good books. There is definitely a time and a place for them. And some of our favorite ones at home are, are anthropomorphized 
books. Uh, but perhaps the time and place for them isn't when trying to discuss racism or LGBTQ identities or other really serious issues. And this isn't just about guinea pigs either. It extends to unnaturally colored people like in the Todd Parr books and many others or using animals to explain accepting differences, um, like in books, Giraffe, Giraffes Can't Dance or Stella Luna. And like with Todd Parr, I personally don't care for him, um, I, but I know that a lot of kids really like the bright colors. And I've definitely worked with teachers who love his books and always do a related art project in his style. And with Todd Parr, I think the messages of his books are good. I'm just not really crazy about the art. It's not super engaging to me. Um, but I want to ask you two, do you think that this counts as non-human representation in a book because the people are fantastical colors? Or do you think it counts as human representation? I, you know, I just think there's something lost in the message when you make these purple people that don't really represent anyone in real life. Um, it doesn't express that there's a dominant group that systemically oppresses another group and names who they are. The blue people and the red people should just get along, kumbaya, la la la. I don't think that a child can take that and understand that message in a holistic way. Um, when a white child carries a greater privilege solely because of their skin color over their peers that are of the global majority, there's just something lost in mm -hmm. to me mm -hmm. in those books that are just green and yellow and purple people. Yeah. Right. It just turns it into a kid's story, a fantastical story. It's not really teaching them anything about the reality, which is what it's I mean, supposed to be doing in this case. But, you know, with all this said, and we clearly get a little heated about this topic, there are actually, you know, like I said, some books that we love that tackle big issues with non-human characters. And we're going to get to those. But first, I, I want to get at some of the categories straight when we're talking about animal books, because I find it very helpful to sort things, especially when it comes to tackling huge genres like animals in children's books. Um, and it, it's helpful to consider that there are really three major kinds of animals in fictional picture books. So of these three, I'm excluding nonfiction, like National Geographic, you know, this is a snake and this is what snakes eat and this is a photograph yeah, of a snake. Of course. I'm not talking about yeah. that. Right. So just in like, picture books, there are three categories that you're really going to find. Category one is wilds. So the animals are animals. They live in their natural habitat. They do normal animal things. But, you know, sometimes in the writing, the uh, authors will give them a voice or like thoughts in, in a human language. So that's number one. Number two gets a little more silly. So I like to think of this as the wildly silly category. So these are books where the animals are animals. They're in their natural habitats, but they're doing really weird stuff. So sometimes they can speak and they're usually pretty ridiculous, like um, the little pig, the bicycle and the moon. Which I actually have to interject here and say that I literally thought you made up the title of that book. Um, when I was reading through the notes until I read more of your thoughts when we were <laughs> developing the episode. <laughs> 
seriously, I've never heard of that book and it did not sound real. No, it's really, it's true. It's a real book and it's, it's a really good book. It's, um, it's a 2018 book by a Quebecois author. Her name is Purette Dubay and it was translated from French to English and it's a boutique imprint of Simon & Schuster. So maybe like the French English makes it sound like a little... A little more out there, but I I recommend it. <laughs> um, so that's that's category number two, right? It's a little out there, but the animals are still animals, and they're still they live on the farm, and they're not like you know walking around in sneakers. Uh, they are riding bicycles. <laughs> so category three <laughs> is where what I like to think of as humans wearing animal costumes because there is nothing happening that is any way like what would an animal would be doing. So they're wearing clothes, they're wearing shoes, they have a house, they go to school, you know, they, they eat regular human food. There's nothing about, about the characters in this book that make them animals anything more than the fact that they have bunny ears. Really. Yeah. So I think we agree as a, as a, trio that the books that lie in category three the the humans and animal costumes that's where we run into some issues especially when you're dealing with moral lessons and and um books that deal with serious important subject matter because the reasoning for making the characters appear as human, I think, is at least in part an attempt to either, or as animals, is I think at least in part an attempt to either soften a blow by creating a layer of separation between reality for the reader and what is actually happening on the page. It's an intentional decision to obscure the issues um, that might complicate a book. Yeah, because I, there's no other reason that they're animals. They don't do animal things, so why are they animals? They're animals. Yeah to hide what the book is talking about to make make it less i don't know controversial less scary for the adult mm. reading but there's no reason for them to be animals <laughs> none <laughs> what is the motivation <laughs> what is the motivation to personify and anthropomorphize in the first place you know what is the psychology here what are the limitations? Why do we insist on anthropomorphizing animals? My personal theory is that people think, you know, the big scary topics are more palatable to parents specifically if the main characters are animals. The problem comes with the fact that it can soften the message so much that the entire point is lost. Mm -hmm. and, and like, sometimes you read a book and you're like, what? <laughs> what was what was the intention here like what were they thinking what were they thinking about this so like for example there is one uh that's called what if bunny is not a bully and it just came out this year um and it's depicting a bunch of animals and it removes you know uh race and other kinds of human I identifiers of uh, income or ethnicity from, from the equation here. But it has all these animals in a schoolyard wearing clothes. They're just like a bunch of kids. And they're discussing issues of bullying and interpersonal problems and working things out. There's a lot of drama. But when you remove all of these, you know, signifiers of, of what, 
a human person, what groups they are a part of. When you remove that from playground politics, the story doesn't make sense. And it's turning the issues of bullying into this sort of generic cloud idea where it's like everybody just be nice there's no reason for anyone to be angry ever and it doesn't make sense and i i just feel like they're trying to ignore the realities of race ethnicity income ability all of these things that that are factors in why kids have problems getting along or or whatever and just totally bypassing it which doesn't make sense to me yeah, so it's like, how can you get across a moral lesson and ask a kid to apply it to their real life when they can't see themselves or their peers in it? And that brings me to another book, which I'm not trashing because we genuinely do love this book as a storybook and we read it all the time. I just deeply believe it misses the mark. I know what book you're talking about. <laughs> okay, so I have to bring up Not Quite Narwhal, which we mentioned at the top of the show, but I I read this book literally dozens upon dozens of times before somebody told me that it was meant to be about non-binary identities. And like, I'm a queer human who grew up in the community and I have non-binary friends and I just fully missed all that subtext. It, it, it all makes sense in hindsight of course, but the message is just so lost in a story about a unicorn who discovered that somebody threw an oxygen tank on them and sunk them under the ocean to live with narwhals in some strange experiment. <laughs> I mean, I'm exaggerating here, but like, it's not a straightforward line from that kind of silliness to talking to kids about how the gender binary is a social construct. I like, we have that one on, on the moonlight projector, which by the way, we love. Um, but I also wondered, like, what is happening in in this book? I didn't get that that was the meaning of the book or that was what they were going for. And who is refilling this oxygen <laughs> tank for the for the unicorn <laughs> under the water? I just, I, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. And and I feel like this book and the like subtext here that it's trying to get across does not really belong in the 2020 time period it's more from like the good olden days or not good the olden days where you know you have everything hidden in subtext with like frog and toad and you're like are they aren't they i don't know nobody knows i agree here i am also a queer human my spouse is non-binary and neither of us got that incredibly subtle message. Um, I like the book, even though the thought of oxygen tanks underwater freak me out. Um, but that's <laughs> besides the point. It's, it's just absolutely not a substitute for a book with human characters about being non-binary, gender fluid, gender non-conforming, what have you. Yeah, and it's like there's a time and a place. And I understand why Jonathan Van Ness used a guinea pig as the protagonist in Peanut Goes to the Goal because it's authentic to him and his story. And it's it's a super notable book because it's one of the biggest traditionally published, largest marketing released, um, own voice non-binary children's books that there's ever been. But would I have loved it more if it was a non-binary human who just really wanted to do super jazzy gymnastics floor routine and use they, them pronouns? Like, yeah, I, I would. Same. And 
<laughs> I am also so glad that they took the original version of Uncle Bobby's wedding into reality from, you know, guinea pig gunkles to a couple of handsome gents. Um, super jazzed. Because now how many more children will be able to read that book and actually see their family reflected in the book now? Especially having the uncles be exemplifying interracial marriage. I love that representation too. And mm -hmm. instead of trying to stretch their imagination to wonder if mom is reading this guinea pig book to talk about like Uncle Bob and his lifelong roommate, Uncle Paul, it would just be <laughs> in miss? there. Like we all have that relative. I have Everyone many of does. them. I Everyone am that does. one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And like, by the way, it also like every time I hear the roommate thing, it's it reminds me of the very vintage daddy's roommate, <laughs> I, which I love. It was light years ahead of his time and has humans. Um, it's hilariously outdated now. But if you've never heard of this book, go look for it. It's amazing. I should really do a live reading sometime on our Instagram. But um, anyway, I, I know books like that. The original Uncle Bobby's Wedding got banned rather frequently and actually Daddy's Roommate as well. Uh, they got banned very frequently, even with the guinea pig protagonists. Oh. So didn't really soften the message that much at the end of the day. Um, I'm not really sure that it truly softened the blow. But anyway, back to the topic at hand. Book like Books like Not Quite Narwhal, Marlon Bundo, Worms Lo Worm Loves Worm, they're great books. I just have to work so much harder as a parent to turn them into conversations that are meaningful with my son. And, and you know, they're just so much more teachable um, than books with human, uh, like, books with human characters are just so much more teachable and easier conversation starters. And they have a better relationship to reality that you know, a four, five, six-year-old can apply to real life. But also, like, I, I think like what you're talking about with how Uncle Bobby's Wedding was originally banned, even with the guinea pigs. When we talk about, you know, 20 years ago and the books that were coming out then, it, it makes sense that, you know, sometimes they did have to hide these messages to avoid getting banned and, and people refusing to read them. But we're coming into a time now where people are okay with this and, and it's not going to get them banned anymore. And people expect to see, um, you know, LGBTQ stories with humans. We are coming to a time where, you know, we don't have to hide that anymore. And, you know, I think that's really great. We don't need them to be guinea pigs. They can no. be, you know, yeah, we've we've moved beyond the world of Frog and Toad living a secret Ernie and Bernie, Ernie and Bert roommate <laughs> life in this day and age. Like it's time. It's time to stop hiding queer people in animal costumes. There is a few um, on the topic of LGBTQ books that do use an animal and definitely get it more right. Um, one that I can specifically think of is Neither by Early Anderson. And this is an example of how I do think the animal metaphor actually helps kids understand being non-binary and gender non-conforming because it's easier for them when they're young, like three young, to understand the concept of, you know, in the middle slash neither, to be able to see two different animals mushed together because like that sort of makes more sense to them conceptually to help to 
describe this abstract in the middle, neither, you know, not one or the other. But Mm -hmm. this definitely shouldn't be the only book read on the topic. It's a good starting point, which honestly is where I think a lot of these books want to land, but it doesn't always work out. And listen, I get wanting to explain things to kids in an engaging way. Like I literally went to college and paid tens of thousands of dollars to learn how to do it. And that's how I know we need more human characters because at the end of the day, that's who kids are gonna learn how to empathize with. I don't care if the tiger is sad and the white kid recognizes that. I need that white kid who is a potential oppressor to empathize, I'm so mad I can't even speak, to empathize (laughs) with (laughs) okay, and understand the struggle of marginalized people in society and figure out how to dismantle that. That is what I need. Yeah, that's what we all need. (laughs) And and I think that books, like, so much passion. We are, the three of us, like, I can't even get it across enough how passionate all of us are about this. So... (laughs) So there's books like Noodle Fant, which we love. Which so good. I, all of us love that book so, 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 so much. Um, and it has so many amazing messages about identity, protest, justice, and more. And they all come in an, uh, across in an exceptionally clear way while still being a book about an elephant who's passionate about pasta. The premise is silly and engaging, but there is still this class of kangaroos that are oppressing all of the other animals and sending them to the zoo if they step out of line, which is like the clearest metaphor for white supremacy in the prison system I've ever seen in a children's book or ever seen in a children's book. And, and then the book takes you through working through a solution for justice and gaining freedom from their kangaroo oppressors. It's hopeful and it has so many discussion starters that draw clear lines to read. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what wowed me the most with that one, aside from like the power to really enrage the reader, because I was really mad. I was like, you get your pasta, okay? You get it. But like, it was how it showed that breaking the law is not necessarily the same thing as being bad, which for children is like mind-blowing concept right there. Yes, I completely agree. The laws are not always just. Mm-hmm. There are things that are legal that are not good and uh and it it is totally mind-blowing for children because they are very into sorting things into good versus bad everything is concrete but to explore this concept of justice and law or people and power not being right is totally foreign to them and it is just so well done so well done and I also think that Noodlefant was one of the best books that teaches kids about injustice and community organizing without being about a specific historical event. It just sort of Mm. teaches the steps and what needs to be involved. And one of my favorite nuanced moments in the story is when some of the kangaroos see the unfair treatment of the other animals on TV, but they're not personally affected by it, so they don't do anything. And they're sort of one sentence it's like some of the kangaroos cared but it didn't really affect them and 
this is such a wonderful metaphor for white privilege and explaining this huge concept to young children. You know, it just opens the door to bigger and ongoing conversations. And the sequel called Oh Copy Tales comes out in the fall. And I am so excited for it. Um, So excited. So excited. And so another book that I like with animals is Dr. Koo and the Pigeon pigeon protest, um, which again is about community organizing and social action, but with a flock of pigeons who don't feel valued uh, by their city, so they take action. <laughs> um, there's even this super funny moment when uh, Dr. Koo delivers a list of demands to the mayor, which sort of like harkens back to carrier pigeon days. And the book also teaches about different roles that pigeons have had throughout history. And it's just a really fun book overall. I love Dr. Koo and the Pigeon Protest, which you introduced me to, uh, Corey, absolutely. And I just, I adore that book. And I think that what is so much more successful about both of these books is that they aren't subtle about their actions. They're extremely loud and the, there's direct correlations to real life to facilitate conversations in engaging ways. You can see that somebody is being treated unfairly and apply that to a situation in real life. Um, Books like this, honestly though, they're the exception rather than the rule in teaching moral lessons with animals. Mm -hmm. I feel like one of the big differences with, with these ones in particular is that they're not trying to soften anything. You know, yes, there are animals in the books, but they use them more as a way to understand how, you know, there's differences between two groups and, and then it kind of explores from there rather than saying, okay, well, we have a message and we would like to just diffuse it mm-hmm. <laughs> with some animals. We'd like to make it more mm-hmm. palatable to everybody by adding bunny ears. Yes, that is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one more aspect that I got really interested in when preparing for this episode was um, the context of anthropomorphic books in history and the psychology of why humans personify objects at all. I'm so excited to hear more about what you've been researching on this topic because this is all new to me. Yeah, you are definitely our expert, LA, on the historical context uh, for all of this, for sure. Well, I... Uh, I, so I went down kind of a, a rabbit hole on Pun articles intended. of the subject. <laughs> well, I go through a lot of rabbit holes on the internet. Like, you know, it's like one in the morning and anyways, you know how it goes. But if, if you're interested in learning more about personification and anthropomorphization uh, in literature and psychology, you can find um, the links down in the show notes. Um, now, I actually was kind of disappointed with the answers that I found because I was expecting, you know, to find out something about in our brains that, that makes humans uh, want to, to, to do this, to create stories with animals, because it's kind of a strange thing to do when you think about it. It's not that intuitive. But I didn't really find anything as, as definitive as I would have liked. I can tell you that... Um, within storytelling, oral, and in literature, it's ubiquitous throughout time, even before really the written word. And it's something that is existed in basically every culture, um, you know. And, and 
when you're looking at picture books or any book or piece of art, you really are viewing it as one piece in the context of a much larger chain or link of other art pieces that exist around it. Nobody creates art in the vacuum, which is why I'm really interested in the context here. Like it, it must have something to do with why people are making them now. Um, and when it comes to picture books right now, like in, in, in English, in the sort of Western tradition, which is what we mostly look at here, um, a lot of what is informing us are classic, um, stories like fairy tales and fables in this case. So the most famous being Aesop's Fables, which you've probably heard of, and they are attributed to an enslaved Greek man named Aesop who lived sometime between about 620 and 564 before Common Era. So we're talking like thousands and thousands of years ago. And um, there are tons of, you know, other examples that have been big influences in, in literature in other places of the world. For example, um, the Jataka tales or legends of Buddha with animal fables are from the fourth century or the very famous uh, Anansi tales, which originated in West Ghana, but spread um, around the 1500s when enslaved people were brought to the Caribbean and the Americas, or also mythology surrounding the animals of the Chinese zodiac, which originated in the fifth century before common era. So like thousands and thousands of years, humans have been creating stories where they are anthropomorphizing animals. This is fascinating. So in the context of the traditions of writing and what we expect children to read, it makes the publishers and the authors feel like writing about anthropomorphized animals might be a natural thing to do. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's what I, my takeaway is from it and, and sort of answers how the history is informing the current production, but not why people are doing it in the first place. Right. Well, so I could tell you, you know, exactly how it's been done in many different places, but the real question is why do it at all, right? Like, why is this a thing? And so I started to look into the sort of psychological um, articles from that perspective, and there didn't seem to be a lot of real consensus on that issue. So some of the articles say that it is simply part of human nature and the ontology of the child, which is like the nature of the child, which is a big fancy word. And, um, but they couldn't really tell me why. And then other articles were saying that actually, no, from the perspective of anthropology, it is in fact not a natural thing to do at all because it's ridiculous. Why would you, why would a rock have a personality and the only reason it's popular is because humans find it so shocking so they spread the stories and they kind of disseminate over time um, but at the end of the day I can't tell you exactly what in our brains makes this a thing although I can tell you it has been shown to improve learning and combat loneliness like um, Wilson the ball from uh, that movie Castaway, <laughs> and maybe some people have named something in their houses. I don't know, like their plants. 
Some people Maybe do they that. name their plant. That's a normal thing that people totally do. It's well, a completely it normal thing. That's what I'm saying. It's <laughs> completely normal, according to half of the psychologists. The other half apparently don't think it's completely normal. I'm going to go with the first half. That's fine. <laughs> so I guess you don't think it's a genre, uh, a genre that's going to disappear anytime soon then? No, I think that this is probably something that's always going to be part of human storytelling. I mean, eventually we'll probably do a lot more robots with personalities. Maybe that's the next step. And it can exist and be entertaining and useful, but it's on its own. On its own, it's not enough to teach kids about the modern world and all of its inequalities and nuances. Right. So there's this historical context that informs the present. I think we also understand that there's this adult squeamishness that informs why we are whitewashing big topics with animals and trucks and things. Um, I think there's also just some laziness. Like we're going through this radical shift right now. And finally, people are paying more attention. I'm hoping this is the shift that removes some of that laziness and gets authors and illustrators and publishers to step up to the plate and stop watering down their messages. Yeah, I... I think searching online for children's books about quote-unquote differences has radically changed in the last month or so too. It's gone from a lot of animal books to hardly any, which I think is a fascinating shift. Even doing research for specific examples for this podcast, I've noticed a shift. And because we are literally seeing a publishing revolution right now, and I think that's really cool. Uh, you know, I mean, do I want things to change quicker and immediately right now? A absolutely, I do. And I hope that the work that I do and you both do can help that along. Because I also believe in baby steps. There won't be a systemic shift until there's a mind shift, you know, like the tides are turning, but I would definitely prefer like a tsunami situation, yeah, just like a absolutely. tidal wave. <laughs> I mean, part of the problem I think isn't the lack of interest right now. Clearly people are looking, looking for it. Consumers are coming to say, Hey, no, you know, we want the books that have the people in them, but, but the publishers just don't have them. And part of the problem is that the publisher turnaround for a book is like two years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like right now they've already planned two years from now. So how long is it going to take them to keep up with this entire societal shift in thought and what people want. I, I don't know. And I think that this is really the time that the self-published authors are going to try and step up to the plate because there's just this vacuum here and someone's got to fill it, you know? Yeah. And I, so it's like, I think I'm seeing the shift in publishers and the conversations that I've had with publishers over the last few weeks but we're not going to see it until 2021 and beyond. And what I think can happen more immediately is that marketing budgets are going to change because a book success or failure is predicated on its marketing budget. So I think a lot of books with BIPOC characters and queer characters and things, they don't get the same marketing budget often. So that's, I think, the, the, the quicker shift that we're going to see. It's really a shame that the publishing industry is so slow and that's why this first wave is going to be self-published books and they can really often unfortunately lack in quality and 
especially in sensitivity. So we're going to have to tread very carefully. <laughs> yeah. It's honestly self-publishing publishing is just a fascinating topic. We talk about it on our own together all the time. And almost we're probably daily. <laughs> almost daily. <laughs> but we're we're definitely going to talk about that more here, but we don't have enough time tonight for that. Definitely. I think this is a good place to put a pin in the topic for now. I really think we do need to have a future episode, um, maybe just to talk about the extreme prevalence of bears in picture books, um, <laughs> or that honestly could be its whole different podcast. Um, we could talk forever. Anyway, we want to thank you for joining us in our discussion about tackling big topics with animals in picture books here on the Picture Books to Gang podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Picture Books to Gang and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to drop us a note and let us know what are you reading. Uh-huh.